0: This is Ethan Grunberg, and you're listening to the Eastern New York Vegetable News Podcast. We're changing the format of the podcast a bit this season to feature more detailed conversations with experts on vegetable production topics. Today, we're joined by Cornell University Assistant Professor of Weed Ecology and Management in Specialty Crops, Dr. Lynn Sosnowski, to discuss the challenges posed by palmer amaranth, water hemp, and other herbicide-resistant weed species in vegetable crops. Before we begin, just a reminder that the inclusion of any pesticide names is for educational purposes only and does not imply an endorsement of that product. We do not attempt to give specific chemical recommendations. Product labels can vary by state and county and must always be followed. The label is the law. With that, thanks for joining us today, Lynn.
1: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
0: So Lynn, you, uh, you've been in your position at Cornell for a couple years now, but you're still getting to know a lot of the growers in the state, especially out here in Eastern New York. So let's start out by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself and uh, some of your research focus.
1: Thanks so so much, Ethan. So I'm a new professor at Cornell University. I'm located at Geneva at the Agritech campus. uh, And I've most recently come from the University of California system. I've been in my position for about two years, uh, coming September because of the COVID pandemic. This is my first full research season. And my lab is focused on weed biology and management in specialty crops, both vegetables and in tree fruit and grapes, with a real particular interest in herbicide-resistant weed species.
0: Yeah, and it's great to have you on at Cornell. There have been a few years where we didn't have a a weed scientist uh, focused on specialty crops, so it's been wonderful to have you on board and uh, unfortunately uh, we've been communicating quite a bit recently because a, a grower in the black dirt region of orange county found a plant called palmer amaranth in his field um, palmer amaranth has been on our radar in extension for several years but a lot of vegetable growers in the region and i think in new york state more broadly are still pretty unfamiliar with with this weed so, can you give us a, a quick overview of kind of the basic biology and, and current known distribution of Palmer amaranth in the U.S.?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I, I'll just preface this by saying that I've been working with Palmer amaranth since 2006 in Georgia, when the the first known cases of glyphosate resistance in Palmer amaranth uh, developed. So, I have spent a lot of time working with this species. So. Palmer amaranth is a pigweed species, uh, but this is unlike any pigweed species that you're probably familiar with in the Northeast. It grows taller than the pigweed species we know and that we commonly work with. Uh, it grows faster than those pigweed species, and it produces more than than the species that we've historically dealt with. Um, It's native to the desert southwest United States, where it evolved to grow under very hot and very dry conditions. That being said, its distribution is not limited to that part of uh, North America. It is now found throughout the United States. It's been reported in Canada, as well as some other countries internationally, and with climate change, it's global distribution is projected to expand and it's projected to move increasingly towards the, the poles. It's an annual species, meaning that it completes its life cycle in a single year, and I wasn't kidding when I said that it grows fast and it grows tall. Uh, I've evaluated palmer amaranth growth in both Georgia and California, and this species can grow up to an inch per day under ideal conditions, and it can reach heights of 8 to 10 feet. Plants that are growing by themselves can get enormous volume to them and can produce stems that are about the size of my wrist in diameter, and I know that doesn't necessarily mean much because you can't, y'all see me, but... You know, we're, we're we're talking, you know, a couple inches in diameter. Unlike many of the pigweed species, like redroot pigweed or smooth pigweed or pal amaranth that we might be used to dealing with in New York, palmer amaranth produces male and female flowers on separate plants. And we call this being dioecious. Uh, and the female plants have been reported to produce up to a million seeds per plant which really leads to the development of really oppressive seed banks. Dense stands of Palmer Amaranth can prevent people and equipment from moving through the field. Um, You know, we could bring cotton harvesters to a halt in, in Georgia with really, really significant infestations. So that's going to obviously impact yield potential through competitive interactions, but it's going to impact harvest efficiency. Um, If you're looking to to, to identify, if you're worried about this species, to identify Palmer amaranth, there's a few characteristic traits that set it apart from other pigweed species. It has diamond-shaped leaves. Sometimes they have a white chevron or watermark or V-shaped mark on the leaf blade, but they have petioles. So those stems that connect the leaf blade to the, to the stem of the plant, uh, those petioles are usually much longer than the leaf blade. And that's a real early significant characteristic for telling the species apart from the others. The stems are smooth and hairless. Uh, and again, it produces these separate male and female plants, and the female flower heads, you're going to know them if you grab them, because the the female flowers are associated with really sharp bracts that can, can stab you and, and hurt a little bit. But if you go and Google palmer amaranth identification really you're going to find a lot of web pages out there because this is a weed of concern throughout the united states and those web pages are going to have pictures highlighting these traits if you look down from at a palmer amaranth a smaller specimen from above they often have a poinsettia like appearance it's not necessarily perfectly characteristic but it When I see that appearance, I certainly start to worry about what plant I might be dealing with. Like all of the other pigweeds, the seed are really very small, and they hitch rides between fields. They hitch rides between farms, counties, states, and, and even countries internationally on field equipment. A lot of our farm equipment is greasy and these little seeds just get stuck to that grease and and they move around. Uh, And that's really a a big part of how we're distributing this species uh, across time and space.
0: Well, you you gave uh, a really great description of some of the characteristics and traits to look for, to help identify Palmer amaranth in the field, but I'll certainly confess, you know, I had seen plenty of images of it sort of casually over the years as, as we've been watching Palmer Amaranth move closer and closer to, to the eastern New York region. But when I got the call to go out to the field, I was absolutely out there with a the diagnostic guide, open on my phone, trying to go through step by step just to make sure that, that we were dealing with Palmer. Um, and I'll make sure in the episode description to include some links to some of those resources that you referenced as well. There are really great identification guides available online you know you oh sorry go ahead
1: oh and i just want to say is that we are in the process of actually developing a pigweed identification booklet for here in new york i have a graduate student and she is taking pictures of all of the different pigweed species that we have growing in new york she's getting really good high definition you know, image, high good image resolution pictures. And we're going to be putting together a little booklet for pigweed ID. And we're also really hoping to work with uh, Yu Jiang, one of our, our professors here at Cornell University, to actually get 3D images of the different pigweed species as they're developing and we're gonna be building a website for pigweed ID. And, and with those 3D images, you'll be able to see the differences in the architecture and the structure in addition to just pictures of leaves and cotyledons and petioles and flowers. Uh, so we're really hoping that that's going to, to help with pigweed ID and look for that from the end of, of this year on, that's, that's our goal right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Once that resource is available, we'll make sure to share it with the the growers in our our region as well. You did mention glyphosate resistance and, and that first identification of glyphosate resistant traits in, in Palmer amaranth when you were working in in Georgia, and and it does seem like uh, Palmer amaranth is particularly adept at uh, developing resistance to herbicides and has developed resistance to multiple uh, types of herbicides. So. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, which herbicides are no longer effective in managing palmer and, and maybe talk a little bit more about why exactly it is that this species is so adept at developing resistance to herbicides?
1: Right. So the, the distribution of herbicide resistances definitely varies uh, among populations throughout the, the United States. We do know that glyphosate resistance or resistance to glyphosate, and resistance to the ALS-inhibiting herbicides, the WSSA group 2 herbicides, is really widespread. Uh, but there are Palmer amaranth populations in the U.S. that have also developed resistance to the photosystem 2 inhibitors like atrazine, the HPPD inhibitors, the PPO inhibitors, Those as the group 4 the oxenic uh, herbicide, so that's going to be 2,4-D uh, and dicamba, and we even have a report out of Arkansas of resistance to glufosinate, so that's the active ingredient in RELY-280 or Liberty herbicide. Now, again, not all of these resistances are found throughout the U.S., but we definitely have seen these resistances develop somewhere. Uh, And we do know that resistances, that Palmer amaranth can also accumulate resistances. So we have what are called multiple resistant populations. So populations that are resistant to not just one herbicide, but multiple herbicides. So like glyphosate and the ALS inhibiting herbicides. Or glyphosate and the photosystem II inhibiting uh, herbicides. We know that there are some populations in the U.S., um, in Arkansas, and in Kansas, where a single population has resistance to up to five different herbicide groups. So that's a real issue. We know that in New York, we have three to four counties with Palmer amaranth in New York, and we are currently evaluating those populations for herbicide resistance. Right now, we've screened one of those counties, and we definitely know that 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 population is resistant to glyphosate, and we suspect to the ALS inhibiting herbicides. And you know, we're we're evaluating other modes of action. Uh, we're evaluating dicamba. We're evaluating the PPO herbicides to 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 really get a, a better idea of what the spectrum is with respect to the development of resistance in palm ramrants. Being a dioecious species, i.e., having these separate male and female plants that really facilitates the spread of traits, you know, via wind-dispersed pollen. And that includes the, spray, the spread of detrimental traits, or at least detrimental to us, not necessarily to the weed, because obviously it wants to survive where these, these herbicides are being put out. But we know that we are spreading resistance traits via pollen through this obligate outcrossing. The species produces a lot of seeds, and so that means that there's a lot of individuals who are going to be subjected to the selection pressure that herbicides impart, and, and that's going to increase our chances of finding these resistant individuals. So really, it comes down to this, this obligate outcrossing, this you know depth of genetic variation, and then just the large number of individuals that can develop within these offspring and, and just increasing our chances of finding that one who's resistant to the herbicides we're using.
0: Well, it, it's sort of a terrifying picture that you're you're painting, you know, a plant that is as aggressive and adept at, at growing, especially under adverse conditions, that's producing this much seed and, and developing resistance to so many of the herbicide tools that that growers have at their disposal, especially, you know, the prospect of, of thinking about, uh, you know, understanding that this hasn't been documented yet. But with that news out of Arkansas, of glufosinate or, or Liberty resistance, you know, especially for, you know, trying to keep it vegetable focused on uh, in the, the vegetable podcast, vegetable growers that might rotate with with uh, resistant soy crops, Roundup Ready or Liberty Link. Um, soybeans and and you know trying to figure out what (laughs) what possible strategy you could use to get that good rotation in and clean up some other problematic weeds possibly that are harder to control and especially crops with those potential resistances it it certainly uh complicates that (laughs) that bit of the puzzle
1: yeah so and and this is some and that's why i'm so glad that you're having me on this podcast is because I, i you know i I do kind of want New York growers and I want Northeast growers to really be aware of the species because I've seen, you know, what it can do in, in, uh, in Georgia, you know, in our cotton and soybean production environments, I've seen Palmer amaranth in growing in competition with, in younger tree nut orchards in California, you know, so I, I do want us to 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 jump on this problem as quickly as possible and, and understand how quickly this can just blow up and become a very difficult issue to manage.
0: We'll be back with more Eastern New York vegetable news after this quick break.
2: The Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program is one of the premier regional agricultural programs of Cornell Cooperative Extension, serving a large multi-county area in the Champlain Valley, Capital Region, and Hudson Valley. The team's specialists worked together with Cornell faculty and county-based Extension educators statewide to address the issues that impact the vegetable, tree fruit, small fruit, and grape industries. The Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program provides educational programs and information to growers and agribusiness professionals, arming them with the knowledge to profitably produce and market safe and healthful horticultural crops, contributing to the viability of farms and the economic well-being of New York State. More information on upcoming programs, production resources, and enrollment options to receive our digital newsletters is all available online at enych.cce.com. Dot Cornell dot edu.
0: Well, and unfortunately, uh, Palmer amaranth is not the only difficult-to-manage weed species with herbicide resistance. Growers in our region are becoming very familiar with glyphosate-resistant mare's tail or, or horseweed. But when I mailed you plant samples from that field in Orange County with the Palmer amaranth population, uh, you know you mentioned when you received them that you suspected that there were likely Water hemp plants mixed in with some of the Palmer amaranth uh, specimens that I sent your way, so maybe it's worth taking a bit of time to review some of the basic details of this other uh, pigweed species, uh, water hemp, as well. Right now,
1: yeah, and I'm I'm really interested in coming to visit with you and and seeing this field because it did look like some of those those species, some of the plants that were in that field, could had water hemp like traits. I am. Before I describe water hemp, I am gonna tell you that uh, Palmer amaranth and water hemp and, and has the ability to outcross. We don't think at very high rates, but that that these species can cross with each other and with other pigweed species, which could also be a concern for moving resistance traits around. Again, we you know we think it's very low rate, but we are not quite sure you know uh, under natural conditions what that looks like. So water hemp, like Palmer amaranth, is also a dioecious species that produces wind-dispersed pollen. It's got those separate male and female plants, and that facilitates outcrossing and also the spread of, of herbicide resistance. It also grows very large. Um, I don't think it gets as big and bulky as Palmer amaranth, but it certainly can get six, eight feet in height. But populations can get very high in fields, which cause problems with growers. Water hemp, like Palmer amaranth, it has a smooth stem. And I'm, I'm going to mention that the smooth stem, because the red root pigweed, the smooth Pigweed and even the pal amaranth all have hairs on their stems. Now they they differ in the amount of hairiness that they have, but water hemp and palmer amaranth have smooth stems. Water hemp uh, differs from palmer amaranth with respect to leaf shape and flower structure. So. Uh, water hemp leaves are longer and more linear or sometimes oval, like a long, narrow oval, when compared to palm or amaranth, typically diamond shaped leaves. And where we talk about palm or amaranth having those petioles that are much longer than the leaf blade, uh, water hemp petioles are shorter or no longer than the length of the leaf blade. I tend to think that their leaves are often a darker green in color as a pair, compared to Palmer amaranth. Female water hemp flowers lack the bracts that the female Palmer amaranth flowers possess. Uh, but again, we talked uh, resistance with with Palmer amaranth. Resistance is also a problem with water hemp. And there's many populations that are resistant to the same herbicides and herbicide classes as Palmer amaranth. And we actually just screened. Uh, we're starting to screen our pigweed species for their resistance profiles here in Geneva. And a water hemp population that we collected from Phelps uh, was resistant to glyphosate was resistant to two ALS inhibiting herbicides. It could still be controlled with glufosinate, so RELI280 or Liberty. Uh, and it was also controlled with 24 DN Dicamba, but that's still three, three chemicals that, you know, for this water hemp population were were out of contention. You know, um, we went up to, you know, up to 4X and, you know, there was there was no death in any of the plants that we screened.
0: And when we talk about, you know, some of these herbicides, you know, Liberty and glu- or Glufosinate, 2,4-D, um, Dicamba, you know, they're, they're not tools that strict vegetable growers are going to be very comfortable using often anyway. And that certainly entered into the conversation down here in Orange County, where um, just across the road from this field of soy, there is a 90-acre block of onions. And the concern with volatilization and drift potential for, for dicamba and 2,4-D, especially, you know, um, basically took, took those options out of consideration. But but you know, I, I think what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, you know, these are tools that are not familiar uh, to strict vegetable growers, and, and a lot of the conversation in the ag community on both Palmer amaranth and water hemp has really been focused on the challenge that they pose to row crops, you know, Roundup Ready corn and and, and soy. Um, especially with that glyphosate resistance uh, trait becoming more common, and certainly seeming to be present in in some New York populations of Palmer amaranth, but you know we we talked about this a, li- a little bit earlier. But I, I really want to give you the opportunity to to reemphasize this point. You know why why should vegetable growers also be concerned about the presence of Palmer amaranth and water hemp in our region, and and what unique challenges could these two weed species pose to especially crop farmers?
1: Yeah. So, you know, especially crop growers definitely need to be concerned. You know, even though these, these plants might be developing the resistances in agronomic systems, or maybe we're detecting these resistances in the agronomic systems, these species don't necessarily remain in agronomic systems alone. Again, we talked about the ability for transport of seeds you know, on equipment. So if you've got a grower who's doing specialty crops, but it's also doing soybeans, you know, and has got this problem that's become established in the soybeans, but then moves it into a specialty crop system, that's an issue because these species are really competitive and they grow fast and they can quickly overtop vegetables. I've got, I've got pictures of Palmer amaranth from Steuben County in field corn you know, with the, the CCE specialist in, you know, with, with polymer amaranth taller than him and the corn both. Yeah, again, I've seen both of these species growing in younger tree nut orchards in California. You know, vegetables are going to have fewer herbicide options available to them for in-crop weed control. And and some of these chemical classes are, are shared with agronomic systems. So resistances you know that develop in agronomic systems could impact the herbicide options in the in rotational commodities. You know, and, but also if 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 agricultural systems are growing, you know nearby vegetable systems, and that's because of proximity is taking tools off of the table. Well, you know that means that we've got you know fewer you know fewer tools available you know which means that we're just allowing these populations to to grow and potentially expand. Palmer amaranth and water hemp grow very quickly. They can germinate throughout the summer, which means that if you are going to be using non-chemical options for control, you have got to use them promptly before these plants get too big to either impede your movement or are able to reestablish. Uh, following an operation and you're going to have to use these repeatedly you know to suppress establishment and you know once these densities build up it is so hard to get these species under control without using the most aggressive and the most intensive actions very frequently you know and and I'm talking even you know even in you could argue a best case scenario where we have a lot of herbicides available to us, you know, they are still difficult to suppress. And, you know, I saw a pigweed last year, Uh, it got cultivated, you know, and its stem got broken off, but the stem got buried in the soil and there was enough soil moisture that 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 pigweed just started rerouting from the stem and and reestablishing. So, you know, these are these are significant threats to agricultural and horticultural production.
0: I, I think you you just made a really important point, which is, you know, I think oftentimes organic growers and there's a, a sizable organic production community in, in the eastern New York region. You know, when they, they enter into a conversation on herbicide resistant weeds, they kind of just glaze over and think that the conversation isn't relevant to them. But in this particular case, you know, when you're talking about the the unique challenges of mechanical cultivation and non-chemical control methods as well that, that Palmer Amarath poses, it's it's very clear that that this is not just an issue for uh, conventional soy growers to, to be worried about it. It's really, it has the potential to be very impactful to to the entire uh, community, as, as you just mentioned.
1: Some systems could be more resilient you know, if, if you're like if an active, you're actively hand weeding, you know, that was one of our strategies in Georgia in cotton, you know, telling our growers, you have to go and hand weed these cotton fields to, to make sure this doesn't go to seed. So some systems might be more resilient and better able to withstand this, but understand that when it gets, when it gets established, these are very, very, very difficult species to deal with.
0: Yeah, and, and maybe to, to make it a little bit more concrete, especially to the black dirt region, you know, as, as many of our listeners already know, one of the major vegetable crops grown uh, in this area is uh, dry bulb onions. And uh, unfortunately, one of the adjacent fields to this uh, soybean field down on the black dirt, uh, it does seem like there are some Palmer amaranth species popping up in that grower's uh, onion field. And everything that you've described today in terms of it being very quick to grow. You know, uh, the, the grower report seeing it jump an inch a day under hot conditions. And, and this grower is using a lot of the post-emergent typical onion herbicides. Uh, Goal, the oil-based Goal 2XL, bucktrill, basagran uh, intended for for nutsedge, um, but a lot of different post-emergent options. And unfortunately, uh, it seems like he's managed to, to hurt the, the Palmer amaranth. But it is persisting. And so I, I think maybe if we could spend just a minute talking about what strategies onion growers may be able to use to protect themselves from Palmer amaranth and water hemp next season, it, it might be a, a helpful conversation to have now because I, I do fear that it's going to become more of an issue down here locally uh, next year.
1: Yeah, so your onion herbicides are obviously going to be really limited. You
0: know, that's.
1: Kind of the nature of the game um, and with the, the PPO herbicides are, are going to be some of your best available options, um, but you're going to have to make sure, you know, applications are timely and according to label to, to maximize uh, the performance for suppressing uh, these species. I, I think, you know, really the, some of the best strategy for, for managing this is not looking at a single crop. You know, you have to be focused. Yeah, okay. So, what what tools would I have available in onions for for management? But we're really going to have to be thinking about, all right, what can I rotate with? You know, what are my crop rotation strategies to to maximize weed suppression? We have to be thinking about Palmer amaranth and water hemp, not just in the our crop of interest but what are our best rotational systems? And I know that can be hard when, you know, you've got contracts to make and, and you know, like economically it's, it's, it's tough, but we have to be thinking about what are going to be the, the systems that are going to give us the most options for either chemical or physical management of these weeds in rotation. And, you know, focus on preventing these plants from setting seed. If you think you have Palmer amaranth in your field. And, you know, you can, you can, you've got a small, maybe you've got a small patch or a few individuals get, get rid of them, get them out of your field, prevent them from setting seed All weed control performance is going to decrease as weed density increases. And and that doesn't matter what strategy you're using, whether it's chemical or whether it's, it's physical. You know, it's a numbers game. The, the more individuals that are left in the field, you know, the greater number of individuals that are going to survive your control efforts. And your costs are going to go up, too. The more, the more plants that persist. So if, if you see them, get them out. Do not let these go to seed. The, the best way to, to manage this problem is to prevent it from getting established in the first place. And and yeah, I'm very cognizant what that could mean with respect to costs and effort and manpower. But we really we really need to be on guard with with these plants.
0: That point about cost of production is is really critical too. I I mean not to keep going back to this one case in, in Orange County, but you know that grower did apply a, a post-emergent application of, of reflex at one point two five pints per acre. And, and you know soybeans sometimes pay well, sometimes they don't. In a, in a bad year, that's going to be just enough even to that system where it may not make it profitable. And you know you can talk about other rotational benefits that are harder to quantify maybe in there, but certainly just looking at the economics of, of soybean production for that individual year, that one application alone is enough to kind of tilt the scales a little bit and, and make growers reconsider the, the economics of it. So um, absolutely that that cost of production point is 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 really critical and, and you you know you also mentioned if, if a grower suspects palmer amaranth population in their field uh, absolutely go try to get rid of it at, at all costs um, before it becomes a complete carpet of, of palmer in years to come but what else can a grower do if they suspect that they might have palmer amaranth or water hemp um, for that matter in in their fields
1: so i think you know particularly with palmer amaranth because we still have it pretty limited within the state. It's in Steuben County, it's in Seneca County, it's in Wayne County, and now in Orange County. Call call me, contact me. My email address is lms438 at cornell.edu, or contact you or your uh, uh, your local CCE crop specialist. We, we definitely want to document the occurrence of... of Palmer amaranth. We also want to know about water hemp, and we want to be able to collect seed if plants do persist in your field uh, to test them for resistance. And and that's going to help us, you know, work with you and your your crop advisors and your specialists to build a better management plan. We're interested in resistance in other weed species too. So I mean, if if you're like Hey, my, you know, this plant isn't dying after this. Let, let us know because this is what we're here for, is to to really investigate herbicide failure and determine, you know, is it is it related to genetic changes in the plant that are, you know, causing herbicide resistance? You know, or is it is it a timing effect? Did you did you not use the right rate? You know, did were there some other application issues, or was the plant too big at the time of application, or were there adverse weather conditions? You know, we want to know uh, and be able to determine if, if there's some sort of application effort that we can change, or you know, hey, oh gosh, no, this is not gonna respond well at this time or Oh geez, you know we this is a a herbicide resistance instance, and we really need to to document this and detail this. Uh, again, you can email me at Cornell. They can get in touch with you. They can get in touch with their other crop extension specialists. We did some screening. We did 30 30 uh, populations of of horseweed last year, just to to you know I was new on board, and we were just testing our screening efforts and. You know, out of those 30 populations of horseweed, uh, 28 of them were resistant to Roundup. You know, almost, you know, 27, 28 of them were resistant to the ALS herbicides we use in soybeans. We had two that gave us some funny responses to other herbicides that we weren't expecting that we need to investigate further. So... To prevent these from becoming widespread in in New York, we, we really need to, to to evaluate them. We're starting to screen our water hemp now. We're screening the Steuben County of Palmer Amaranth right now. And, Ethan, if, if the, the field goes to seed, the Palmer Amaranth go to seed that you're working with, well, we're going to be collecting the seed from that, too, and screening it this, this coming fall, winter, and next spring.
0: Well, let's let's hope it doesn't come to that. But I anticipate we'll be getting some seed into your hands this fall. Um, we've we've covered a lot today, uh, but is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add before we wrap up this episode?
1: Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> one person at a at a meeting once called me Doctor Doom, you know, because I was talking about herbicide resistance and. You know, herbicide resistance is is a significant issue, and yeah, we have to we have to be watching out for it, because a lot of our growers use herbicides as their primary tools for managing weeds. So we need to know when some of those tools, you know, become ineffective. But I I, I want to drive home the point that anything we do, you know, can You know can uh select for weeds that are tolerant of of that management practice we can select for weeds that you know where we're mowing right we can select for weeds that are now more prostrate or you know have very deep tap roots so they're able to regrow following a mowing operation you know our use of cultivation and tillage or our choice to not use cultivation or tillage selects weed species that are adapted to those environments. Even hand weeding, there, there are weeds there are that mimic crops in the way they look and the way they grow and develop so that they are now technically resistant to hand weeding because you, you can't visually distinguish between them and the crop as easily as you used to. So understand that weeds are adaptive organisms, right? They are they they are meant to survive, and so we really need to diversify our management strategies as much as is feasible, both environmentally and economically, you know, to to suppress to suppress this unwanted vegetation.
0: Well, Lynn or Dr. Doom, I want to thank you again so much for taking the time to to talk with us today. And uh, we look forward to continuing to to work with you in the future. Thanks for listening to the Eastern New York Veg News Podcast. For more information on the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, visit our website at enych.cce.cornell.edu. Also, be sure to check out the links included in the episode description. Thanks to Sarah Tobin for editing this episode.